0: This is Reconsidering, the podcast that explores how to make a living while making a life, or something we like to call the alchemy of satisfaction. I'm Aaron Walter. For many of us, time slips by mysteriously. It's gobbled up by email, by social media infinity pools, and the flotsam and jetsam of life. At the end of the day, we're left wondering, uh, what did I do today? John Zarasky, co-author of Make Time, wants us to be more aware of and intentional about how we spend our most precious resource, our time. John spent years working at Google and GV, the venture capital arm of Google. With that sort of background, you might think John's perspective on time management slants towards productivity and optimizing output, but you'd be wrong. Years in the tech industry grind where attention is fragmented and speed is fetishized, have given John clarity that a laser focus on what's important is the path to satisfaction and balance. John's perspective will help you reflect on what's most important in your life so you can allocate your time accordingly and find highlights every day. After the show, check out reconsidering.org for show notes and links to everything we've referenced. After this quick break, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Bob Baxley and Meredith Black-Brant for our conversation. With John Zaratsky. Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact? US Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills. And they've helped more than 200 communities in 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org. I'm John
1: Zaratsky. I'm a designer, a startup investor, and the author of Make Time and Sprint.
2: So we're going to start with a lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of uh, A or B questions, and you're just going to blow through them. If there's something you get stumped on, just tell us you're stumped, and you can skip it if you want. Cool. Ready to go? Ready. Okay. Paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Morning. Newspaper or magazine? Magazine. Books or e-reader? E-reader. Computer or smartphone? Computer. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Twitter or Facebook? Twitter. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Bezos all the way. Mm. Steve Jobs or Tim Cook? (laughs) Gotta go with Steve Jobs, Eleanor Roosevelt, or Jackie Kennedy. Eleanor. Speaking or listening? Listening. Lecture or Q and A? Q and A. Journal or blog? Blog. Read or write? Read. Library or coffee shop? Coffee shop. Hoodie or blazer? Hoodie. Mansion or apartment? Mansion. Home or office? Home. Disneyland or Yosemite? Disneyland. Hotel or Airbnb? Hotel. Backpack or suitcase? Suitcase. Scripted or improv'd? improv Jazz or classical? Jazz. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Encyclopedia. Shakespeare or Einstein? Einstein. Tolstoy or Van Gogh? Van Gogh. Earthquake or fire? Earthquake. Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. Loved or feared? Loved. Okay, you've almost made it last one for you here. Poetry or prose? Prose. Thank you very much. That's great context. First question I want to start with is maybe you can just give our listeners a brief overview of the book, Make Time, terrific book. Tell them a little bit about what the book's about and some of the other activities that are going on with you and your co-author, Jake Knapp, around the book and the content.
1: Sure. Make Time is a book that describes both a framework for how to make time every day, really how to focus your day, build your day around the things that matter, and then also provides kind of a cookbook or a a list of recipes of really tactical ways to do that. We wrote the book because we had both spent 10-plus years trying to figure out how to spend more of our time on the things that really mattered to us, And, and I think that was especially acute for us because we both worked in Silicon Valley in the tech industry. We both worked at Google is where we met. And we went through a process that I think a lot of people have been through as they advance in their careers, where, you know, you kind of start your career doing the work, you know, that is at the essence of, of your job. But as you get more successful, or you move up the ranks, or you take on more responsibility, I think people often find, and we certainly found that we were spending less time on our work and more time on meetings and email and, you know, project management and all that kind of overhead. And so I think we initially sort of became interested in the, these ideas at work, but then we realized that we could use those approaches outside of work as well to make sure that when we left the office and we got home or, you know, these days when we uh, turn off the computer at the end of the day and sort of transition into personal life that we weren't just wasting that time, squandering that time on things that are the path of least resistance, but don't really make us any happier, healthier, better off. So that was kind of how we got interested in it. And and we had a really unique opportunity, I think, because Jake and I worked together at Google Ventures, which is a venture capital firm funded by Google or Alphabet, technically, and investing in all kinds of different companies, independent startups that have nothing to do with Google. And our job when we were there, was to go inside those companies after the investment was made and support them, work with them. In order to do this work, we developed something called the Design Sprint, which was this method to help teams answer key questions that they had about their product or their business or how they're going to go to market and work in a very structured way to answer those questions in the context of a single focused work week. The reason I say this was a unique opportunity for us is that we started to see from having this laboratory of going from team to team to team, we started to see the benefits of having a framework and having a set of tactics and, and structures for how you spend your time, that you didn't just have to let time sort of happen. You didn't just have to like go with the flow. You could really be deliberate about how you spend your time, about what you focus on. And so make time to a large extent really builds off the lessons that we learned in the design sprints builds off the lessons that we learned having this little laboratory of being able to go inside a lot of different companies and work with a lot of different teams and help them spend time on the things that really mattered.
0: John, you and Jake Knapp, co-author of Make Time, are some of the most thoughtful people I know when it comes to just thinking about time, being thoughtful about how you're spending this very limited commodity of one's life. I wonder if you and Jake had like these catalytic moments in your life where it was kind of an aha, an awakening where you realized, I need to be more thoughtful about how I spend my time. I think that those moments
1: are, for me anyway, have rarely been super catalytic or crystallizing in, in the moment. You know, I think f- for me, looking back, I've realized, oh, wow, there's these things that happened that maybe I wasn't fully aware of at the time, or I didn't have the proper context to realize the significance of what was happening. But they definitely exist. You know, I don't want to speak for Jake, but I know that that he's written about and he's talked about how having kids really changed his relationship to time. And he realized that every every minute he was spending checking email or sitting in a pointless meeting was a minute he didn't have to at least potentially spend that time with his kids, You know, if, if not focused on important work or important projects. For me, the closest thing to a catalyzing moment really came when I was fairly early in my career. I was living in Chicago. I had been working at a startup that was acquired by Google. And it really accelerated, I think, that process that I mentioned before about how my time became dominated more and more by administrative aspects of work, by overhead, by process, and was less about sort of the core of the work. So going from a startup where it's really like, There's as little overhead as possible. You you just focus to an almost extreme, kind of insane extent on the work itself. And then to be acquired by Google and be dumped inside this big company, you know, it's still a technology company. So it's not super bureaucratic. But, you know, even in 2007, there was a lot of overhead. There was a lot of meetings, there was a lot of email and that kind of stuff. And once the initial, I think, excitement of the acquisition itself wore off and sort of this like, what just happened to me like kind of feeling of wow look where i am this is amazing i never imagined that i would have had this opportunity given the you know the work that i had been doing the, my educational background whatever after that excitement wore off i went through this period and there were a couple of, of really key moments where i realized that i had sort of fallen into this very blurry mush of of undifferentiated time where i was just waking up going to work going to meetings staying on top of email, trying to fit in design work, projects that I needed to do here and there, bits and pieces. And this was all happening kind of in the winter in Chicago. And that particular (laughs) winter was exceptionally snowy and kind of gray and unpleasant. And I just remember having this sort of period of just really intense surprise and then dissatisfaction about how I was spending my time. The giveaway, the the marker of that was really that I, I started to feel like I just couldn't, remember what i'd been doing you know it was like i'd look back and say what did i do this week what did i do this month like what have i been doing and it, i could list a lot of little things on a, you know a task list but i couldn't point to any really significant accomplishments professionally or personally in that period of time and 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 i think that was really the moment that sort of led me to pick up books on Zen philosophy and (laughs) getting things done, and you know, (laughs) like some of the first books about Stoicism that were out at the time, and just like you know, uh, I should say first books in the contemporary (laughs) era because, yeah, been around for a while, but but just sort of like begin to really research those things and think more proactively about how I was spending my time.
3: You've also written about your ideal day. Can you give some of the highlights of the approach and maybe a little bit about the methodology about how you came to settle on this?
1: Yeah. My ideal day is not about sort of a picture perfect, Instagram ready, you know, bucket list type of day. For me, it's important that the ideal day be sustainable and repeatable because my belief is that happiness and a kind of baseline level of satisfaction and contentment. Really comes from the things that we do all the time, the things that we do every day, instead of these peak moments that I think a lot of people focus on or work toward. And so for me, my ideal day, it starts pretty early in the morning, you know, not 4 a.m. or anything insane, but it starts depending on the season, somewhere between 6 and 7 a.m. And I get up and I try to skip all of the sort of morning check-in normal stuff. So I don't look at the news. I don't check Twitter. Depending on what's going on, a lot of times don't even look at email right away first thing in the morning. And the thing that really helps me get an ideal day started is to dig into something meaningful, some meaningful work, some meaningful project, some meaningful activity. And I feel like if I can prioritize that first thing in the morning, when my energy is best, when my head is clear, when I haven't let a bunch of noise into my brain. Then I set up the rest of the day for success. So that's really the first block.
3: Do you feel like you have to set expectations with other people that that's kind of your approach or do you just kind of go with it and then hope they follow along? I think because there's so much pressure, you know, and especially in the morning. And I think, with a lot of these companies and a lot of these startups where it's just kind of like, go, go, gear on once you wake up, on until you go to sleep. How do you tell other people about your approach and how do you get them to understand that that's how you work?
1: Yeah, I think that considering how important time is and considering how finite it is, I don't think we talk about it nearly enough. And so to me, it's really important to talk to the people that I work with about how I like to spend time. Not to issue a policy memo about this is, you know, here's the user manual for working with me. I mean, I I know people who have done that and I appreciate it, but I, you know, I try to say, let's find a place where we can meet in the middle and talk about our preferences for how we like to work, how we like to spend time. I think it, Varies. You know, when I was working at Google Ventures, which is the last time I was in a team with dozens of people working together on a day-to-day basis, it was, I think, maybe 50% sort of just organic, like people observed what I did, or you know, we kind of worked through it in process versus, you know, 50% like I would actively sort of tell people like, oh, hey, can we schedule this meeting in the afternoon because I try to keep my mornings free for focused work, things like that. Again, not as a policy, but as a starting point for a conversation or a negotiation. The last several years, I've been working with individuals mostly, with small groups of people or with a team of people for a limited amount of time in sort of focused engagements. And we're usually very deliberate and very upfront about how we like to spend time. I've been working with a new business partner over the last year, and he and I have been through several iterations of creating our shared calendar. So our shared template for what are the chunks of time where we're going to have meetings? What are the chunks of time where we're going to do individual focused work? I think that when I Talk about these things and and even I think the way that we wrote about it in the book, to a certain extent, it comes across as us saying that some activities are always more important than other activities. And I often use email as a good example because I think, you know, most people feel like email is kind of annoying and like you have to do it, but like it's nobody's, you know, priority for the day. But I think in some cases, email is. The most important thing. Like, depending on what you're doing, depending on what your job is, you know, and I certainly go through periods of certain projects or or certain, you know, things I'm working on where it's like, yeah, being responsive on email, putting together a proposal and sending it to a client or, you know, writing up some thoughtful feedback for a friend or a partner who's asking for it, those things become the most important thing. And so when I describe kind of my ideal day, and I say that I try not to look at email, I think it's the administrative kind of like, oh, I better check in and see if there's anything quick that I can knock off the list here. It's not to say that email never happens in the morning because sometimes the most important thing to do that day is to respond to some email or some emails. Maybe that sounds like a bit of a dodge or, or, or a classic sort of it depends answer, but I think it all flows from first being really realistic about what the most important thing is and then using a set of, tactics and structures and tricks to try to structure your day around that most important thing
2: yeah one of the things I really liked in the book is you, you guys talk about the need for a daily highlight and you kind of push it to this extreme like one of the suggestions was you write your daily highlight on a post-it note and kind of stick it you know in front of you so you're focused on that every day and I just love the part where you said sometimes your daily highlight is just to catch up you know it was sort of a gift you know to like say hey it's it's okay to spend your day just getting caught up on email cuz it's so refreshing you know to come to your computer and not feel that you're behind all the time
1: after i left google ventures we took some time off to travel and we were doing some extended sailing we met some friends who were were similar to us who had been fellow dinks double income no kids professional couple who had retired early and and decided to sail and they actually gave us this concept of the admin day we ran into them at some harbor somewhere. I said, What are you guys doing? Oh, we have tomorrow, we're doing an admin day. And we're like, Interesting. What's that? And they're like, When you're at sea or you're off the grid, like to this ex- really extreme extent, things pile up. And that happens to all of us. And I think it's actually not a bad thing if we let that happen, as long as we know that there's going to be an opportunity to catch up. As long as there's going to be that admin day where it's like, Okay, don't try to like, work on your book or design your product. Don't try to do those big things you think you're supposed to be doing. Just give yourself fully to the task of catching up and and like you said that is uh, a really freeing feeling.
0: John, how do you think about longer term priorities and goals? I mean, it seems like you and Jake have spent a fair bit of time of like dialing in as you talked about like the hacks or the tactics for the daily experience, but how do you think about like priorities for a year or Priorities for five years or a lifetime?
1: When I went through that period of becoming sort of dissatisfied or disenchanted with how I was spending my time and reading all the books about time management and philosophy and stuff, I got really into goal setting and I began to make lists of my one year goals, five year goals, et cetera. I think a lot of time management or project management type of writing sort of assumes that you need to have these long-term goals and then everything ladders down from there. But I think it sets up a bunch of issues. I think that it creates a fundamental unhappiness with where you're at today. Because you're basically saying, like, I'm not good enough until I get to the goal. And I also think it focuses on outcome instead of process. So it encourages you to think, well, whatever it takes to get there, it's worth doing. And then when I get there, I'll be good. I'll be happy, which then I think in turn also makes it more difficult to keep going with things. Like if you you know, decide to run a marathon because you want to be more healthy, it's very difficult to keep running after you finish the marathon unless you set another goal, another marathon, a super marathon, whatever. And so, you know, I eventually came to take sort of a dim view of goals, I think. And so I don't really have a lot of goals. I mean, I have projects that I'm working on that I want to finish, but. It, I don't have like a bucket list of things that I have sort of mapped out to do in my life. And so, you know, I really think of the things that I'm working on and the way that I'm spending my time is kind of this portfolio, you know, kind of have like this basket of things. And periodically I rebalance the portfolio. There's an exercise that we put in the book called Stack Rank Your Life, which we've actually kind of evolved a little bit. But the essence of the activity is that you just, you make a list, Of all the stuff that's going on in your life, both finite projects as well as ongoing areas of responsibility. And then you try to prioritize that list. And it sounds like really dumb, but it's amazingly clarifying to write down all the stuff and be like, wow, there's stuff on this list that I do that I don't care about. There's stuff on this list that I say I care about, but I don't do. And I do that exercise periodically. I do it every couple of months or whenever things are feeling out of balance. And then I use that as sort of a guide to how I'm spending the hours in my days, in my week. And, and sometimes I'll even go so far as to do the math of like, okay, look back on the calendar. like How many hours did I spend on this thing? Did I spend on that thing? And I think there's a maybe an element of, almost an element of faith that like, if I'm spending time, if I'm Sort of creating the structure to focus on the things that I say that are important. Eventually, I will reach some goals. I will reach some outcomes that are important. But I try not to, I think, fixate too rigidly on the specific tasks required to reach a particular goal, because I just think that's a framework that does not lead to sort of happiness and satisfaction on a day to day level.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, John, because a lot of stuff you're talking about is like living with intentionality there's a real designer ethos that kind of comes through what you're talking about. And you you mentioned previously about Stoicism and Buddhism. I, I can't say I hear the Stoicism piece quite as much, but I definitely hear the Buddhism piece. And I'm wondering if there was something that happened that led you to read, I guess Stoicism would be Western philosophy, but it seems like you're kind of blending Western and Eastern philosophy and you're kind of finding a way to take Eastern concepts of practice and daily focus and try to figure out how to fit those into the kind of chaotic Western work style. Something you mentioned earlier about, I think maybe Western society tends to emphasize the urgent and there's a lot of kind of heroics in how we get things done. So I'm just curious, like, did something happen that sort of led you to Stoicism and Buddhism? Was it a teacher, something you read about in the newspaper? Like, how did, how did you come across all those streams of thought? The best answer I can think of is that
1: when we lived in Chicago again, and I was kind of having this winter of discontent, <laughs> and uh, at the time, my wife and I—we both had really good jobs. We were super fortunate, but we were really into frugality. My wife actually proposed early in our relationship: "What if we saved one of our paychecks? Like, what if we basically only spent half the money that we made as like a policy?" And I was like, "Okay, uh, that's interesting to try. I can see how that—you know—even before I really knew anything about investing or money, I was like that." seems like it could create some interesting opportunities in the future. And so the reason I say that is that I was a heavy user of the library, the Chicago Public Library. And we had a branch close to us in our neighborhood where we lived in Bucktown. And I just remember, I mean, this was like, obviously Amazon existed, but like the ways that we discovered like information were totally different back then. Like, you know, this was like two thousand. Six seven, eight and like Twitter was like a thing technically, but like it's not like it is now and like you had blogs obviously, but you didn't have aggregators of blogs in the way that you have effectively like you have you know social media, you have medium, you have these places where you, there can be sort of this virality of discovery of content like those things were all sort of they were different. And so I remember literally just like just go to the library just like, wow, go to the section on like, self-improvement or like time management or like whatever, however it was organized. And I think I probably just came across some of these books in that way and picked it off the shelf. And I guess really was a beneficiary of like the traditional curation, curatorial role of a librarian at some point. And then, you know, you read a book and then the book references another book. And so I'd check that one out and just kind of built from there.
3: So there are so many books about time management. Yeah. And- Process and project management, everything. I guess my question is, is, why haven't we figured this out yet? Like, why do there <laughs> have to be so many books about this? Do you think it's because it's just such a personal preference?
1: I think that's part of it. And I think that most of the books don't acknowledge the role of personal preference. And that was definitely something that we tried to do in our book, yet another book about time management, effectively, <laughs> attention, energy management. You know, most books don't say, this book is going to work really well for you if you are this kind of person. Right. Instead, they start out and say, this is how you should manage your time. Period. And so I think that's part of it, is that there is this very opaque sort of fracturing of different books for different kinds of people. I think that just if you look on sort of the scale of human evolution and civilization, like a lot of the issues that we're dealing with now are very, very recent. And they're getting harder to deal with and more challenging, I think, just, you know, year by year, decade by decade. Think about how much more distracted people have been by what's going on in government, politics, the nation. Think about January 2021 and like the attack on the Capitol. Think about that and then think about like the three months before that and the, the election. And then like the 12 months before that and sort of like the primaries and the run up to the election. And think about like the three years before that, like since Trump was elected, like each of those things felt like now this is crazy and then it got crazier and then it got crazier and crazier like in these like sort of fractal, like smaller slices of time. And so whether that is like objectively true or empirically true, I don't know. But I think we share a common belief, whether you're Republican or Democrat or whatever, like I think people feel like the world is getting crazier and harder to deal with. And so I think as the environment changes we need different tools better tools hopefully to deal with it so i think that's part of why there are so many books and so many approaches to these things of course there are near universal truths about people and and i think one of the really interesting things that's happened over the last couple of decades and something that we tried to really bake into make time is that the understanding of Human behavior and like why people do what they do, how they choose to change behavior or to continue the same behaviors, you know, in terms of their routines or habits, that has gotten much, much better. You know, the whole sort of world of behavioral science, behavioral economics, like habit formation, those are like trendy topics now. And there's a lot of like best selling books about it. But like truly, the academic research on that stuff went from almost nothing, almost zero. Let's say 100 years ago, to like just to this incredible flood of, of studies and research on that. I think that that is also kind of feeding this new surge of material about how to live, how to work, how to spend time. I hope that as our understanding of those universal concepts continues to grow, we'll be able to find some more timeless principles. But I think we're just in a particularly chaotic and dynamic. Time right now, where a lot of different things seem to be changing on all sort of different pieces of the, of this equation. Yeah, what books do you recommend? I'm a big fan of Cal Newport. I like his stuff. I like Ryan Holiday's books for the most part. Mm-hmm. I really like Gretchen Rubin, The Happiness Project. Mm-hmm. She's written a bunch of other great stuff. I really like Laura Vanderkam. Her books are much much more tactical, but I think they're they're very smart and i think they're rooted in in research and practicality those are the ones that are coming to mind now where it's like if one of them writes something new i will check it out for sure i also find that a lot of inspiration and lessons you know they come in unexpectedly from other sources or other books so you know reading biographies and you know reading or narrative storytelling about things like you know super popular book but i read shoe dog by Phil Knight, you know, about the story of Nike and just like took away a bunch of interesting stuff there. Right now I'm reading a book about the Vanderbilt family and like lots of anti-patterns about everything, (laughs) but also like, I don't know, just particularly if we can look backward into history, I don't know, it's sometimes helpful to like just bring a different perspective or inspire kind of a different way of thinking. Maybe we're able to, I guess, connect the dots is what I'm saying between like, oh, there's this new research or there's this new book about something. And then you see some kind of more ancient or proven traditional or historical wisdom about something and you're like, oh, like that clicks and that makes sense. And I understand why this thing might be true at a deeper level than just like,
0: I think it sounds good and it works for me. John, work takes up about 20% of average human's life. And if you factor out sleep time, it's considerably more than that. Mm -hmm. So it occurs to me as you've taken this very thoughtful approach about managing your day and and those days add up to kind of a thoughtful, reflective life. I wonder, how do you think about that large chunk of our lives or, or of your life? How you choose what work is good work, is interesting work, engaging, enriching, and meaningful work to take on? So this is going to sound a little bit cheesy, but the sort of
1: core philosophy or mission for the work that I want to do is it's kind of rooted in service. And I don't mean service like volunteering or like working at a nonprofit. And this perhaps is just a result of my background as a designer, but I'm just always thinking about like the work that I'm doing, what is it enabling somebody to do, right? Like it's not about the value it's creating for me that's one of the considerations but that's not the driving consideration but i'm just constantly thinking about writing something designing something building something sharing something what is the value what is the service that that's going to create for somebody else so i guess you know the impact and so that's kind of where it starts for me i want the sort of the impact and the service and the the mission i want those things to be like Together and again, not necessarily always in the way that we use those words. For example, it can it could be in a very commercial context. You know, I view investing as a service activity because when it's done well, you are serving the entrepreneur that you're investing, and in, you're giving them the ability to. Focus their time and focus resources on solving a problem that they believe is important. You're supporting them as they do that work. So you know it doesn't have to be in a in an altruistic sense, but that's kind of where it starts for me. And then there's a few other things that I think about. So I think about leverage a lot, which is another word that I'm using in a way that isn't usually how it's used. But you know, usually you say leverage, people think of debt, and debt is a type (laughs) you know is the most common form of financial leverage. But I really think of it as The ability for my work to be amplified beyond the direct impact that it has so that's why i have chosen for example to write books instead of providing one-on-one coaching or to invest in companies instead of building my own company there are people for all those roles and I don't think any less of them. But for me, I really like operating in positions of leverage. I guess it just keeps me more motivated and more excited about the potential for the work that I'm doing. And then I also think about ownership, both in financial and just kind of an emotional way. I want to work on things where I have a real sense of ownership over the outcomes, over the work that I'm doing. I find responsibility very motivating so i've experimented with kind of different levels of responsibility to myself and to others and i have found that when i am only responsible to myself for me i don't know if this is universal but for me i actually feel less good like about what i'm doing there's something clarifying about like i am free and we felt this when we were on our sailing trip like we wake up in the morning and all we really need to do or think about is ourselves are we safe are we comfortable are we Healthy, whatever. But I find that a degree of responsibility to others, people waiting for things, people expecting things, people paying for things, whatever. I find that very clarifying and very motivating. So I guess those are kind of the three pieces. You know, I talked about the sort of the mission or, you know, the role of service, the leverage, and then the sense of ownership in in the work that I'm doing. Those are kind of like the filters that I look through when I'm considering taking on a project.
2: So, John, we just, you know, kind of one last thing for you here. I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to take a guess in my head that you're older than 25. And so I want you to take a second and just sort of like really conjure up 25-year-old John in your imagination. What advice would that 25-year-old John give the John today?
1: I've always really struggled with the question of what would you tell your younger self? But I really like the what would your younger self tell your older self question. I think that my 25-year-old self really understood the value of full engagement in a way that i i had to like sort of unlearn and then relearn in my 30s mm. and to just add a bit more color on that like when i was in my 20s i would like jump in 100% both feet into all kinds of stuff and it took on too much you know like i would Completely overcommit to projects side projects, like helping friends with design work for their startups or like hacking on apps or whatever. but when I did something I, I like really did it I wasn't searching for easy ways out I wasn't searching for paths of least resistance, and I think then as I got older, I began over indexing on sort of convenience or ease or wanting to say, what's the least I can do to have the most impact? Or what's the, the least I can do to have my time free for something else? And I think that it swung too far on the other direction. And so now, and I'm, I'm 37, by the way, and now I, I feel like I have found a much better balance of understanding that if you find the right work and you have the right mindset, instead of habits and routines and structures around that work, that it can actually be really really gratifying to be fully engaged to just you know this is one of the things we read about in make time like to go all in and just say i'm just going to like i'm going to go for it yeah. i'm not going to hold back and again you have to have like structures around it because otherwise it'll take over your life but i think that's the thing that 25 year old version of me could have shared with 35 year old version of me
2: that's incredible
1: thank you cool yeah my pleasure
2: So that was a great conversation with John. Meredith, what was some of your key takeaways?
3: My key takeaway was he helped me learn how to say no, to be honest. yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the way he sets the structure of his day and the way he discusses, you know, what he does and what he doesn't do first thing in the morning and how he doesn't overcommit to things really helped me understand that it's okay to say no and it's okay not to overcommit or commit to something just because you feel this pressure to commit.
0: Totally. I'm so awful at this. I say yes all the time, but I can see very clearly when I look at my calendar at the beginning of a day, like what's my day look like today? When I see a day that is jam-packed full of meetings and stuff that I have to do, I am at my least happy, least satisfied. And when I have a generous day where you know I can still be productive and still have highlights, Mm -hmm. but there's some breathing room in that space, I'm way more happy. And even though I can see that, I don't quite map my days that way. So I definitely have a few things I could take away from John's approach.
2: Yeah. I wonder if that's part of the beauty of the highlight approach. You know, there's like, this is the one thing that I'm saying yes to today and everything Mm -hmm. else becomes fungible, you know, becomes optional. At least it gives you a lens by which to say no to some things. At least in my life, it's often hard to say no because your bucket's not really full. It's like you're traveling around with too big of a suitcase right mm-hmm. and you just and you feel like you're just going to fill it up instead of thinking no actually I should leave some room in the suitcase so it's not so dang heavy to haul around
0: he's also the first person I've ever heard kind of disparage the idea of long-term goals that mm-hmm. you know most of the time people when they, they're setting goals they're very long-term that you know what's your one year plan your five year plan your 10 year plan it's kind of hard to know because there's so much in life that's variable and it takes us away from the immediacy of the day, which, again, is why that highlight and that structuring your day is so critical.
2: It's an interesting observation about his, his attitude towards long-term goals, because I think what he's trying to do is inspire people and, in his own life, stay true to the practice of happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's like this day-to-day practice. You don't actually set long-term goals for practices, you don't set a long term goal for meditation. You know, long term goals are mm-hmm. like there's they're these accumulative type things, and they're so extrinsic and snowballing. And like a practice is, you know, I'm going to journal every day. I'm going to paint every day. I'm going to exercise. You know, when you really talk to people who are really into exercise, there's a point where they transcend goals. Like they don't talk about setting PRs or any of that sort of stuff. It all just becomes a consequence of their practice. I wonder if that's part of what he was getting at with the focus more on the, on the near term. The other thing that I love from, and I've heard him talk about this before, but I just really love that whole thing about taking a day and, and making your highlight catch up. And he talked about how they'd learned that when they were sailing and that there was another couple that they had met who, when they'd come into port, they just yeah, spend a day yeah. catching up. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about that was him sort of giving you permission to just back away. And like his whole philosophy is not this celebration of productivity. You know, there's no kind of moral judgment about, are you moving towards some unbelievable transcendental goal or something? It was just trying to live an ongoing, content, happy life. And that meant a sort of accounting for the realities of modern life, which occasionally is just sitting at your desk and catching up on email and all the stuff, just the life maintenance stuff you have to do.
3: Yeah. He called those admin days, which I really liked. Because it's true. It's just kind of like some days you just need to get a bunch of stuff done and crank stuff out. And then you just feel so much better. Yeah. And just setting that expectation that there is that one day where you can do it and get it done and you've dedicated, you know, some time to it kind of takes the pressure off.
2: Yeah, those are like some of my favorite days. And I think it's because of some of the stuff I've heard him say and I've read about just it sort of gave me permission just to have an advent day. It's just transformative how much better you feel
0: after getting through all that stuff. Absolutely. Well, Bob, Meredith, you know what the highlight of my day is? Tell us. Talking with you two. (laughs) That's the highlight. I'm pretty confident that it's going to last all the way through the day, too. (laughs) (laughs) Reconsidering is created by Meredith Blackbrandt, Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.